have two maps. The top one is a map of the Mediterranean Sea and the surrounding regions. Um, guys, what's at the bottom there in the middle? What landmass is that? Yeah, yeah, in, in its most general sense, what is that? That's Africa. Yeah, that's Africa. So you kind of know. Then we move our way around to the right side. Of course, there's Israel. And then we move our way around. What's the area on the top of that there? Is that Europe? Europe? Yeah, Europe's to our left. The area just below the earliest churches. That's Turkey. Mm. Gigantic chunk of land in comparison. Considering that the uh, whole nation of Israel is, uh, in essence, almost exactly the same size as Wales. I'll give you a perspective. Now, that area there with those red dots at the top, that area there is the seven churches of the book of Revelation. By the way, please love me enough to always be reminded that it is not the book of Revelations. The first verse says the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you get past that verse, the rest of the book's simple. Uh, and so, but when we zoom in on the one place, the, the seven churches, and notice, by the way, they go in a route that's roughly an oval. And as they travel this oval, the last of those seven churches is the church of Laodicea. Now, you may be familiar with that if you've read through the book of Revelation, and I pray that you have. And if not, oh, do. I can't wait till we get to that. That is such a fun book. It's one of, to me, it's the easiest book to teach in the New Testament. Uh, the area of Laodicea is in a valley called the Lycus Valley. And that area has three different major cities, Hierapolis, Colossae, and Laodicea. Each one of them has a very predominant theme, if you will, or kind of a rep. Each one has its own rep. Laodicea, by the way, well, let me say it this way. Hierapolis had natural hot springs that came up. They were sulfur springs. Now, anyone ever smell a sulfur spring or ever been in a sulfur spring? They're actually quite good for your skin or so I'm told. Uh, maybe it's a joke because you come out smelling like a rotten egg. I've done it on there. The Calvary Bible College in Marietta actually has natural hot springs that are sulfur. <coughs> but for the, for the rough part of it, let's just say that Hierapolis is the spa. People go there. And by the way, you're probably where poor people don't normally show up in a place like that. It's wealthy people. So Hierapolis is the spa. Now, if you were to travel then from Hierapolis to Laodicea, you're going to travel roughly six miles. Laodicea is the bank. That's where you're able to go and cash in your money. So let me ask you, if you have a bank and you have a spa, what's left? What else do you need? A place to shop. That is Colossae. Colossae was your market. And the distance between Colossae and Laodicea was 12 miles. Now, for us, that doesn't seem like much. Well, actually, to be honest, for us, beyond most people in the world, it does seem like a long thing. Because going five miles in London takes about an hour and a half. I mean, you know, and that's just the way it works. So, I mean, but consider the fact, in other words, you, you didn't spend a tremendous amount of time at the bank, but you spent enough time to collect what you needed, but ultimately, or actually have them store what you needed until you got it. But you went and you got yourself worked on, you know, you got that, and, <clears throat> and then Colossae, of course, collected 
the, the, no, it was the marketplace. Now, if it was the marketplace, it was the place that was going to be the melting pot for a lot of different cultures. Because the more cultures you bring in, the more varied your market can be. Well, that only makes sense. I mean, if everything kind of has this same kind of theme to it, well, then only a certain amount of people or a certain kind of people are going to like it. So they, in essence, they would try to incorporate everybody they could into this. Now, it's important to note, by the way, that Laodicea was so wealthy that twice, well, arguably three times, but twice it was leveled by earthquakes because it's also a fault down there. There's an earthquake fault, a tectonic fault. And Greece and Rome both offered to help rebuild it, and they refused at the insult of the governments to actually sponsor it themselves because they were just so wealthy. Why in the world would they want anyone else intervening? That was the idea of Laodicea, which, by the way, helps you understand a little bit about the book of Revelation as it's written to, as one of the churches, Laodicea and their spiritual condition. Now, for what it's worth, <clears throat> you're looking at a distance six miles, to six miles, 12 miles, 13 miles. That's kind of your triangle of these places with the Meander River in between them. Now, for what it's worth, uh, the bank, uh, Laodicea, was tired of people going to the spa, so they tried to actually irrigate the hot springs over to, uh, to Laodicea. But they also had already irrigated some of the cleaner parts of the river in as well as drinking water. So the problem was is that the neither of them were marked very well. So if you can imagine that Eddie goes over there to get some good, fresh, cold drinking water, and by the time, the problem is when a hot spring travels under a river or through a river, even if it has clay pipes or whatever, and it ends up on the other side, it's not going to be hot anymore. It's going to be stinky egg water. So imagine Eddie comes thinking he's going to get some cold, fresh water to drink, and what he gets is nasty egg water that's lukewarm. He will spit it out of his mouth. Why is that important? Because it's exactly what Jesus says about Laodicea. And it was something they were very well aware of. And it was a very bad experience for anyone there. Okay, for what it's worth. And I can develop all that, but we'll do that perhaps when we get to Revelation. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church tells us a story, by the way, about pagans who tried to divert the river, the Meander River, but somehow when all of this, St. Michael stepped down, or, or Michael the Archangel stepped down and re-diverted the river. And uh, anyways, and all of that, all that just meant is somewhere in all of that, there's, there's always been this kind of idea that this was a very spiritual place to be. 200 B.C., the Seleucid king Antiochus deported 2,000 Jewish families to the area. Now, those 2,000 families, by the way, were farmers, and they brought a tremendous amount of, of farming knowledge into it. So what actually it tells us by 625 B.C., well, I should say, it's like, well, by the time, actually, so they, by, by roughly 100 B.C., the whole area was known as, in essence, the wine valley of the Phrygian area, because this is the Phrygian area, because the vineyards had just flourished in the area. Now, it is important to note that it was a wealthy place. I mean, if we were to think of it in London, we'd have to think of it as maybe Hampstead Heath, because it was a place that was very green. It was a place that was well-watered, like the pools in Hampstead. It was a place where the wealthy went. But then I don't know if it is a spa place, but kind of let's put that in there just to get that idea. Uh, and, but then we have the marketplace. And the problem is the marketplace that's close to Hampstead is Camden, which is the opposite. But imagine if a wealthy, is there a wealthy marketplace? I mean, think of it as like you, sh you cut off that part of 
the Westfield Mall that's like Jimmy Choo and all that stuff that none of us, you know, like we walk through and it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what you look like. You walk through there and people are like, what are you doing here? You're not going to be buying any of this. And you're like, yes, you're right. I'm not going to buy it. You know? But imagine you cut that off and stuck it there. That was kind of the idea. But it is one of the two churches that Paul did not plant. That's important to note. And that's going to become very, very fundamental in this for a good reason. Now, does anyone remember the other church that Paul did not plant that he writes to? What's that? Remember? Romans. Romans, excellent. He had not been to Rome yet when he wrote Romans. So it was the two churches that he wrote to that he had not actually had. He had some personal contact with a few people, but what's clear and evident is this was the one church that, uh, well, the other church that he had actually had never been to. He had never been to Colossae up to this point. Uh, <clears throat> now it tells us for what it's worth in regards to that. In one four, he says, we heard of your faith. In one nine, it says, since we heard, we haven't stopped praying for you. And in two one, it says, you know what great conflict I have for those of you and those in Laodicea, as many who have not seen my face in the flesh. In one seven, he tells us who actually did plant the church, a guy named Epaphras. This is our dear fellow soldier, faithful minister of Christ on our behalf. Don't miss that. He actually has a great deal of respect for the guy who actually planted the church. And uh, it's important to note he calls him a fellow prisoner in Philemon, verse 23, because there's only one chapter. So it's assumed, and by the way, Paul, well, I'll get there. Paul writes this from prison as well. 124, he says, I fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ that we're going to need to develop. And he says, remember my chains in the last verse. Paul is in prison. He's in that, so that's that 60 to 62 AD time when he's in house arrest, writing to a church that he had never been to, that he had not planted, but he hears about it from the guy who planted it, Epaphras, who now, by the way, apparently is in prison with him, if that makes sense. Now, he is going to send two people, Tychicus and Onesimus. And we read that in chapter 4, verse 7, when it says, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant of the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. I am sending them to you for this very purpose, that, you may know, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts, also with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, and they will make known all the things that are happening here. Now, Onesimus, just remember that name, because when you get to Philemon, the whole story of Philemon is about a slave that escaped that got saved in Paul's ministry. The problem is the slave owner was also saved in Paul's ministry. And the letter can be summed up with this simple statement, Hey, bro, he followed me home. Can I keep him? But because I'm not banking on that, I'm going to send him back to you with this letter. <laughs> Imagine that slave owner in that culture had the right to kill him. And he has in his letter, he has this thing that says, by the way, let me just remind you, you got saved in this ministry, and he got saved in this ministry, and I want, I'd like him. Can I have him, please? That's kind of the idea. Obviously, Paul didn't want him as a slave. He wanted him as a brother. So, but imagine being that slave. Imagine being an estimate. Oh, man. Lord, please, that'd be good for your prayer life. Lord, please don't let him kill me. Does that make sense? Now, consider this. The whole point of this letter. Paul is writing to a church he's never been to. Planted by a guy he knows and trusts, but he wants to be sure. And I don't think this is an insult to Epaphras, who had been there planting the church, but basically it kind of goes like this. Chapter 1, I want to make sure you have the real Jesus. That's fundamental. 
chapter two, let's now try to actually help you get cult proof. And then chapter three, let's actually challenge you to grow. And then while we're at it, all these people say hi. And there's some really revelationary things, by the way, in chapter four that are really fun, by the way. So with that in mind, he is facing, and what we're going to find is the fundamental issue on this is that he's facing an awful lot of problems with an awful lot of people that he just become evident are really trying to muck with the church there. And he's not happy about it, and I don't think he should be. I think it's become evident to Paul that any time a church is planted, there's always going to be people waiting to create trouble. So let me kind of lay this out, and we're just going to start reading through it. And I'll ask, answer any questions. But here's Paul's basic modus operandum himself. First of all, he'd go, to an un, he'd go as an unknown into a city. Consider that first of all. Imagine a guy that no one's ever really heard of or known walks into London. If there's a synagogue, he starts there. And he basically goes there and debates, trying to prove that Jesus is the Christ. And then sooner or later, they hate him and they kick him out. But then he actually goes to the God, and then he starts preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, and a bunch of Gentiles get saved. That's pretty much the way it normally happens. Then somewhere in the evolution of Paul's ministry, he starts to realize that brand new Christians are remarkably susceptible to liars. They're of this naive but excited faith that is super impressionable. So somewhere in the evolution of Paul's ministry, he starts to build airtight, cult-proof disciples. So you give your life to Christ. He's not like a traveling salesman with a, with a hoover. He realizes when a bunch of people get saved that he wants to make sure that you could be cult-proof. Remember when he meets with the Ephesian elders in Miletus, and he says, I want you to know that after my departure, savage wolves are going to come, not sparing the flock, and men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw up disciples for themselves. He goes, I just, I've warned you ahead of time, I want you to know this is, in, and it isn't like Paul's a pessimist, he's a realist. He's like, here's the unfortunate thing, now look at I am convinced the world is starving to death for evangelists. People that will genuinely go out there and preach the gospel. But every evangelist needs an, a small army of good pastors with them that are, that are in one way or another committed to that evangelism. To follow up. Because most evangelists are not great at follow up because that's not their strength. Evangelists should be doing what they do best. Which, by the way, you're probably aware of it. Evangelists, they start at the cross, they end at the cross, they take the world and they pull it to the cross, and they say, make a choice. Now, there are evangelists who are fairly good teachers, but they'll never be my favorite teachers because that's not their greatest strength. They're usually great exhorters. In other words, do something about this information. I love them for that. But evangelists need to be around lost people, but they should never be alone. They need to be around people who, by the way, will invest into them. Because let's face it, that's somebody that's jumping in the cesspool every day. And they need other people to remind them because you lose focus. I mean, you lose perspective after a while. And you watch great evangelists that are out in the world and they become a lot more worldly 
because it's what they've all that's all they see. And so you want people that are just like, you know, hey, love you, but it's people that they trust. But then the pastors are the ones that, that come alongside and go, hey, we just want to we want to pull you in and let you grow, desiring the pure milk of the word that you grow thereby. Does that make sense? And that's like, I just think of people like Bruno, who's an evangelist, and I think of people like Shamar, who, by the way, they grew up together, there's the funny part about it, who's super inviter. Mm-hmm. You know, he's like, you know, he's like a super, they're like superheroes in their own ways but, that God has granted them. But it's like, you know, it says, by the way, the guy that preaches the gospel should actually live by it. It's like, sooner or later, a guy that's super gifted in evangelism should not be locked in a closet. He needs to be around lost people and see them come to know Christ. It only makes sense. But you need to be around other people that will follow up so that they don't have to do that so they could go and evangelize other people. That's the point. And so what happened is if Paul would go and he would evangelize, people would get saved, and then somewhere down the evolution of Paul's ministry, he started realizing, dude, a bunch of brand new saved baby Christians in a place, they are sitting ducks for these cult people, which, by the way, what's the one group we know that's been following Paul around and causing trouble? Circumcision. They're the legalists, I remind you. And that's one group that's, that they just feast on young, it's, it's like feast on baby lambs. It's because they look and they go like, well, yeah, Jesus plus this. Does that make sense? So what Paul would do is then he'd start to bulletproof them. So look at, Paul hadn't been to, Epaphras, or to uh, Colossae, Epaphras, I remind you, had planted the church. So because he had planted the church, what he wants to do is then is say, well, let's make sure that, in other words, Paul's doing this interesting because he's a pastor. But he's an evangelist. So in this case, Epaphras gets to be the evangelist in the Colossians. Paul wants to follow up. And this is, what a, this is what a pastor does. Do you have the right Jesus? That's chapter 1. Does that make sense? And then let me warn you about what the cultists are doing so you could be aware of that stuff. Now he doesn't focus on them, but he'll tell you, here are some things you want to be aware of so you don't get suckered into them. That's chapter 2. Now let's grow. That's chapter 3. Does that make sense? Well, let's read through it together, though, shall we? All right. And I'm going to... Obviously, there's going to be a couple of places. There's going to be some fun things to teach through in this. Um, by the way, I do challenge you to look... By the way, in chapter 1 again, look at not just um, who Jesus is, but what Jesus is. This book will focus on that in chapter 1. And I remind you, he hadn't planted the church. He wants to make sure you have the right Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul. Jesus bless you. I mean that word for word. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossians. Praise to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, saying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of your love for all the saints. Let me say this, before we even just start to jump into this. Love is always the thing Paul looks for. Jesus, remember, tells us in John chapter 13, by this... All, not just some, but all will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. To the Galatian church, he says, circumcision or uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. The best way to exercise your faith is to love one another. Ephesians 1.15, he says, Therefore, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, 
First Thessalonians 3.6 says, But now Timothy has come and told us and brought us good news about your faith and love. Second Thessalonians 1.3 We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love for every one of you has the bounds towards each other. First Timothy 1.5 The purpose of the commandment. Love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, from a sincere faith. Greet those who are in the faith, he says, by the way, in Titus. He says, and all those who are with me, faith that who love, love, who love us in the faith. When he writes to Philemon, verse 5, he says, I've heard of your love and your faith which you have toward the Lord, Jesus. And the reason I say this is, this is what should be prevalent in a church. He wants us to know the truth. He wants us to know the truth so that our trust would be mature. Remember, faith comes by hearing and not the word of God. And when we do this, we're going through the word here. God's depositing faith in your account, more trust. And what happens like anything is the reason we get fat is we eat too much energy and we don't spend it. Is that a fair way to put it? Imagine what happens when we eat all of this and our faith grows and God says, you know how you're supposed to exercise that faith? By loving one another. Not running out and preaching the gospel to the world, though we're called to do that. But we exercise our trust in God by putting other people in front of us. That's what faith, I mean, that's what love really is, is you before me. And the reason I say that is, is again, like Colossae, it's like, oh, I heard there's a new church that's being planted. Imagine if that was the case here. Greenwich or Camden or Covent Garden or up in East Finchley or wherever and we were like oh we just heard about this new church being planted what's the one thing we want to look for we want to look and see if these people are loving each other because you know what we naturally do is we look to find out what the problem is what are they doing oh they're tatted they're one of those churches oh they all come in suits oh they're one of those which is really sad it's like hey can you all wear suits and love each other sure can you all scream, hoot, and holler? Now, that doesn't mean there doesn't need to be things that need to be tightened, but that's not our job anyways. That's God's Word's job. But for us, wouldn't it be great if we looked for other churches that loved each other? Well, wouldn't it be great if we were one? Sitting here and eating with each other? It's like, in sitting with this guy that we, in a counseling last, yesterday, it's like one of the first things is we never want to see anybody in ministry that we haven't first seen love the flock. Because if they don't love the flock, then your service really... It's not out of the overflow. Well, I want to, we want to move forward, but at least I want you to recognize he recognizes it in this church. He's like, well, then this must be a legitimate Christian fellowship. Mm-hmm. Verse 5. For the hope which is made up for, for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the <coughs> word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as is also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. As you also know through the Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declares to us your love in the Spirit. For this reason we also, <coughs> since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, as well as that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
strengthened through my according to the glorious power for all patience in one suffering with joy. Give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Don't miss this. What Paul said is, since we heard this, there's only one thing I can do. What's the one thing Paul was driven to when he heard about this church? You have to pray for him. What does a pastor's prayer look like? That you would be filled. What we read is the knowledge of his will. Do you see that? But please let me develop that for just a second. Knowledge. Those two basic words, idas and gnosis, right? Idas means to perceive, or like, you know, kind of in a, you're taught this is white, you're taught this is this, because you've just been instructed in that information didactically. Or you can know by experience. Now, again, not just in experiencing it yourself. Here's the danger. When you experience something yourself, it's not going to be objective. It's going to be subjective. You know, we can, all, we, can, we can have very, very different experiences, but if we experience something together, we have a memory together, and that's what he's talking about. But is there something deeper than, than this gnosis, epigenosis? And the idea of that is that that thing now is impressed upon you in a way that changes and shapes you. That's the word he's using here. And I don't want you to just have that. I want you to be filled with it, but it gets better. I want you to be filled with that kind of knowledge of his will. But I remind you, will is not God's special secret plan. That's the danger. You know my kids, and you know me, you know that I'm a dad. Imagine if I told my kids in the morning, I told Ruthie, I have a special plan for you today, and if you can't figure it out, I'm going to punish you for it. Wouldn't you think I was a weirdo? So how, what kind of God do we preach when we tell people that ourselves? Hear me on this. The word will is the word thelema in the Greek. And the root of that, thelos, means pleasure. It's not God's secret plan, but rather God's open pleasure. Imagine in the morning you didn't go, God, do I wear the jeans or do I wear the camel shorts? What's your will? You know what's amazing? We can focus on things that are inconsequential and ignore the things that are important. Like, what would please you today? Now, do you imagine God would be like, the shorts issue isn't the big one. How about, I'm, how about we spend time together today? Imagine like, God, I don't have time for you today, but which shorts do you want me to wear? I mean, that's the, and, and look at what he's saying. He's going, I heard about you guys being planted. I've heard about your faith and your love. So it sounds like you guys are the real deal. So that's what I'm praying, that you would know and have those experiences to know God's pleasure. You know God's pleasure in this sense. Remember, that's to know together. Have you, I mean, I don't know what kind of dad you guys have had, but it has been such a big deal to me that my kids know my pleasure. The idea of seeing me pleased with them. I hope you get to see that. I hope I get to demonstrate that to you. Not when you're doing, being a doofus or whatever. You know, I don't want to applaud your insanity. But, but in those moments, and it isn't like you're doing something that blesses me. And then, To be honest, it's like when I watch my wife being pleased, most of the time it doesn't involve her. She watches me do something she thinks is kind or selfless, and it really blesses her. I mean, sometimes it's as simple as getting up because somebody's moved on to the train that clearly needs to see more than I do. But whatever those moments are, and the reason I say this, do you know that father? Have you ever, ever had a moment, even a moment, 
in your life where you're like, I, I, I sense God's pleasure in that. My whole life's been filled with those since I've come to know Him. You know what Jesus says? No, He's God, so that's safe. He says, I always do that which pleases the Father. Could you imagine being able to say, I sometimes do that that pleases the Father? Hey, for some of us, that's a major step forward. But do you know the one thing that pleases Him more than anything? Just being with Him. Just handing yourself over to Him. No great performance in that. The rest of the stuff's the product of that. Because can you imagine, and can I just say, it has reignited my prayer in you in that. To say, God, let them really know your pleasure. Because the moment you know that your Heavenly Father is pleased with you, now look at it, if you're living in rebellion, don't expect God to be pleased with that because He loves you too much to enjoy that. But if you're not walking in rebellion, oh, know His pleasure personally know and experience his pleasure so that you'd be walking worthy, you'd be pleasing fully, you'd be being fruitful, you'd be knowing more so, and that's that epigenosis, you'd be growing stronger and you'd be thanking the Father. You know what you'd end up with? Thanks, Dad. Now, <coughs> I, I couldn't not let, I couldn't not say that. Because even if we just stopped here, don't worry, I have no intent on that. I pray that's the thing that hits you on the pillow tonight. Something's got to hit you tonight when you put when you lay your head on that pillow. I pray it be that. That tomorrow, at latest, you have some moment where you just become aware that your father's pleased with you. Do you know the first time that God openly declared that He was pleased with Jesus? Yeah. He said, This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But had he taught anything yet? Had he healed anyone yet? Had he stood against the religious leaders at all yet? He hadn't done anything. So how could the father be so pleased? It was in his statement This is my son. You see, that's why the Father's pleased. Because you're His. When I see those kids cry in the stores and all that stuff, it pleases me because they're not my kids. Because I remember when, before we were parents, we were like, well, when we have kids, we'll make sure that never happens. <laughs> and I'll be honest, God must have known what kind of wimps we were because He really gave us amazing kids. We've never, I cannot think of one moment Maybe it's actually just grace, the grace of forgetfulness. But I actually can't think of a moment like either of our kids ever had a tantrum. Meltdowns, yeah, where they imploded, but I can't think of an exploding moment except for Ruthie on <coughs> But I mean, I'm not, I can't think of one. I mean, he's really blessed us that way, but I don't think it had anything to do with our amazing printing skills. I think it had anything to do with God's grace, but I do want them to know that I delight in them. Okay, well, let's move on. Because now let's make sure you have the right Jesus. Verse 13. He has delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son. Remember, deliverance is not just being taken, it's being brought somewhere else. You have to have a destination. In whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. 
He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, <coughs> who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now don't miss this. A couple quick things. Remember again, there's no deliverance without destination. Key, that's verse 13. He's the image of the invisible God. And then we have this fun word, the firstborn. There are those who have their special group that is based on works. I don't want to say who they are, but they prefer to witness about Jehovah. Mm. <coughs> and they'll say, well, clearly then Jesus must be created because he is the firstborn. And firstborn, doesn't that mean first created? No, it doesn't. The word in the Greek is prototokos. Firstborn is a position. Let me remind you, Jacob tried to make Joseph his firstborn. He granted him. By the way, I remind you, some of you know the thing about their responsibilities of the firstborn, giving dad a proper burial, carrying on the family business. That's fundamental. But it is a title you can give to a donkey. <coughs> There's a title you can give to someone who's not, to something that's not human or to someone who's not actually in your family. Sometimes, you could do, sometimes people would do that with the oldest slave in their house or the first slave born in their house. But it's imperative to know it has nothing to do with whether something is created or not. As a matter of fact, we get more of the word prototype from it than we do actually some, the idea of the first child that was born in the house. And it's imperative for you to know that. Now look at what it says, though. It says, all things were created through him. Stop. That alone should tell you that Jesus wasn't created. Because if, if this is the bag of all things that were created, and this had to go through Jesus, he had to be there before everything that was created was created. Does that make sense? He had to be, if he had to exist before everything that was created, he couldn't have been created. Because it says, all things that were created were created through him. But they were not only created through him, they were created for him. You're probably aware of the fact you were created. I'd like you to think about the fact that the perfect, holy Father, who has no blemish, no stain, and never makes a mistake, wanted to give a present to his Son, and he made you. For not only by Jesus were you made, but for Jesus you were made. Well, he's before all things, and in him all things consist, literally stand together. He's the head of the church, the beginning, the firstborn among the dead. And I remind you again, there's our title. That in all things he may be first and in charge. Verse 19. Remember that Father being pleased in you? Look at verse 19. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. Clear proof, ladies. That submission does not mean lesser. It pleased the Father that Jesus is just as much God 
as the Father, but submitted to His will. Do you know why He submitted to the Father's will? So that we didn't go to hell. Aren't you thankful Jesus didn't go, Hey, excuse me, but if I submit, I'm less of a God than you are, Father. And then we all go to hell over that (laughs) argument. It's important to note that. Verse 20. And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked words, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Notice this is going to be the crux of this the, this next statement or this next movement. The first place do you have the right Jesus? And now he goes, look at you. Got to stay grounded, and do not move away from the hope of the gospel. You will say, well, how could I move away? from the hope of the gospel. He goes, oh, I'm so glad you asked. But first, let's approach one of the weirdest scriptures in all of the Bible. Verse 24. And now rejoice in my suffering for you, and fill up in my flesh when lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Okay. And if you read that and go, what? Jesus' suffering <coughs> were, were lacking? And Paul is filling in the gap? What the heck does that mean? Is that a fair question to ask under the circumstances? So this is the best place to teach this. What do we do when we approach a difficult scripture? I think that's a fair thing to to put out here. So let me suggest these things to you. Because this is what I had to do. First of all... (coughs) You stop and you pray. Because it tends to be, and we have this rule, this saying that's almost a mantra, overthinking is under praying. <laughs> and sometimes you go for this crazy long walk over around the pier of insanity and you don't actually stop and go, God, I'm not getting this. So you, this, so you pray and then you slow down. Some of you here are very, very bright people. You probably, I mean, I'm not saying that like, there's no one at the table here that I'm thinking isn't very, very bright. Some of you, it just tends to be part of your MO. I mean, it's like, you know, it becomes a sort of prevalent part of your personality. And when you don't get something, this weird, mild panic arises inside you. And I know you know it. Because you're like, I'm used to getting things. And I'm not getting this. And so you have this tendency to want to speed up instead of slow down. (coughs) So you pray. You slow down. The next thing you do is you get context. I cannot stress how important this is. The reason why introductions are so long at our church is because context is so important. 
This is where we're at in the chapter. This is the time period we're looking at. Let's zoom in, wide camera angle, zooming into the point of it. Here's the last chapter. This is what happened last. Because you've got to know where you're at. If you're anything like me, if you just kind of, you know, you like that tube map, and you just had this moment when you were first looking at it, that's nothing compared to looking at the whole thing. Oh, I'm right there. Now I can zoom in and start seeing. I'd like to know where in the world I am in, result of the, in, in context to the big. Does that make sense? So what happens is people take a little verse and they run off with it, but they pull it completely out of the context of its scripture, and they go all kinds of crazy places with it. And it's amazing how clear things are when you do that. Well you, well, you don't do that, but where you actually go, all right, what does the text around it say? Does that make sense? Then you set boundaries. What couldn't it mean? Now, that doesn't mean two things couldn't coexist that don't make sense together. But if God says one thing, it can't mean that this is false. Does that make sense? In, the, in, the, in this particular context, or this particular verse, Paul could not be suffering for someone's salvation. And there are several reasons for it. One is, because Scripture makes it clear, Jesus is the full payment for every lost sinner. And we bring up verse after verse, but the, the bottom line is, if I know what the Scripture says that it couldn't mean then I have some space in between. Does that make sense? Then I kind of go, if I know what's clear, then there are going to be some options on the table here. But I'm not going to die on the hill in case somebody thinks different than, than me on that. Because we can agree on this, the boundaries, well then the rest is okay. Does that make sense? Because <coughs> if I haven't figured it out and someone else hasn't figured it out, we're both kind of at this point going, it could be this. And there's a cool humility in that. Does that make sense? But traditionally, when I get to that point, the next thing I've got to do is I've got to look in the book that I'm reading, like in this case, Colossians, about what Paul's saying. He is suffering. And somehow that suffering is filling a gap that Jesus left in his suffering. Remember, this is part of slowing down. So I start asking, well, what is Paul suffering? Where is he mentioning his suffering from this point? Because I've always found the best place, at least in my options, to find which one I'm going to side with is the one that Paul defines as much as possible or develops in the rest of the text. Does that make sense? First John. This is... I'm writing to you no new commandment. It's an old commandment, which you've heard from the beginning. But on the other hand, I am writing you a new commandment, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining in you. Wait a minute. So it's not a new commandment, but it is a new commandment. How is it really not a new commandment, but it really is a new commandment? And you can go and sign, you know, throw yourself onto the spaceship and wind up in any planet you want on that. Until you get to the next chapter and he says, he says, this is what you've already heard, the message which you've heard from the beginning. I get to the next chapter and he says, this is the message which, for, which we've heard from the beginning, that you should love one another. I go, oh, so I should probably insert that into this question, right? So it's not a new commandment to love one another. Yeah, that's fair. But it is a new commandment because it's true in Him. I go, oh. So it's not a new commandment to love one another, but finding what love really means in Jesus is an entirely new commandment in the sense of the cross. You couldn't say to somebody before the New Testament, if you're going to love someone, it means the cross. Because there wasn't a cross before the point of that. So it is the same old commandment, but it's 
it's true, it's new in this sense, I have a very much clearer view of it because of what Jesus did at the cross. Because it's true in him, and it's also true in you. Because the darkness is passing and the true light's already shining, which is a parade metaphor, by the way. And he goes, I'm already starting to see that happen in you. And at least now, you could have a different take on that, but I got it from the same book. So I tend to go, well, with all the options, that one I tend to concede with. Does that make sense? So, if that's the case, and by the way, so once I've done all of that and I've kind of done this, I list out options that it could be. And then I just pray and go, which one jives with me the most? With my understanding of God, which one jives with me? And by the way, usually when I list options, it's pretty likely the reason I'm doing that is because someone else is going to go, well, I kind of think this. And I'm like, you know, actually, that was a legitimate part of my list. Yeah, I can see why you would think that. I don't necessarily think that way on that, but I can see why you think that, and I can respect that. It's still on the dance floor. We can still do our different dances. Is that fair? But there's a cool humility in that, because part of what's cool about being a Christian is actually showing what real tolerance looks like, which is that you do disagree, but you're not going to actually throw rocks at each other for it. So, okay, so this is what he says. If I slow down, it says, I feel what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, so something in Jesus' suffering, flipsies, flipsies, the word that we looked at, by the way, in Second Corinthians, some, there's still a gap there. But I also know who he's doing it for. Who is he doing it for, according to verse 24? But, yeah, okay, so who is he not doing it for? Yeah, the, the world, or the lost. He's clearly, his suffering is to do something for the church. For the, for the body of Christ. Does that make sense? Well, let's read on and let's see if there's any other development. See if there's any place else or what Paul is trying to accomplish. Or we see anywhere else where Paul's going through some hardship and he's, that's got some purpose to it. Verse 25. Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations and now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Don't miss this. The word striving in the Greek is the word agonizia. Or agonizomai. Do we get a word in English from it? We do. Does anyone want to guess what word? Mm-hmm. Agonizing. That sounds like kind of like a hard time, doesn't it? The labor word is not the classic word of just exercising strength, but it literally means to work to exhaustion. Why is he laboring and agonizing? It's in the verse before that. That he would present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Do you see that? He's got a purpose. Now, is he trying to present the world perfect in Christ Jesus? Of course not. He's trying to present the church perfect. But I remind you, perfect is not absent of flaw, teleos. Perfect means to finish its destination. Remember, like a bus says this bus terminates at, or like the northern line terminates at Morden. When it hits Morden, it's been perfected. That's how Jesus was perfected. He wasn't like he had a flaw that he lost. He had to go to the cross and therefore, when he actually paid it for our sins there, he said, Tetelestai, Telaos. It is finished. It is done to perfection. Does that make sense? 
In other words, what Paul says is, I want you guys to finish your route. I want you to get to every place that God wants you to get to. And the way I want to do that, by the way, I am working to exhaustion on this, and I'm agonizing over this. Well, look at what he says as we go to chapter 2. For I want you to know what is what a great conflict I have <coughs> and those in Philadelphia. And for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. Okay, now wait a minute. We have a conflict now. Does that sound like maybe some kind of suffering of Paul? In fact, the word there is the word agon, like the beginning of agony. The same word. Well, look at what he says why in verse 2. That their hearts might be comforted, being, being knit together in love and all and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the ministry of God and of the Father and of Christ. Okay, so this is my conclusion from reading these verses. And again, this is one of those places where I say, this is my opinion. You're welcome to disagree, but keep it on the dance floor. Paul has a unique position Jesus does not. Jesus' suffering was for all the sin of mankind, including yours and mine, but he's God in the flesh. And with that, he paid for our sins, rose again and gave us new life, just as we read in Scripture. Paul, do you remember in Philippians, Paul said that he was in prison and it was actually working out for benefit? Does that sound familiar? Can you remember the two primary benefits that were there as a result of that? What's that? Yeah, one was that the brothers became more bold to testify in their faith. Do you remember that? (coughs) The other was that he actually got to preach the gospel to people he wouldn't have otherwise. Okay, you remember that. He says, well, my imprisonment is causing other guys to get bold. Does that make sense? He goes, this is what I get to do that Jesus couldn't. No matter how much Jesus suffered, you could always say, well, of course, he's God in the flesh. That's what he's going to be. And Paul's like, but I'm not. I'm a human being like you. So when I suffer, and when I strive, and when I agonize, I'm just like you. And what I want to do is I want to take you to the end of your thing. You might be like, I don't want to finish this race. And he's like, yes, you can make it. If I can make it, you can make it. And as a result of that, he says, look at this great conflict. Because he goes, because I want your hearts to be encouraged, verse 2, or comforted as you read, same word. And then you would have a full assurance of understanding. He goes, you know, this is the benefit I have in my suffering. And then you go, well, Jesus suffered. Of course he suffered, but he's God in the flesh. He's going to be perfect, and he's going to do things all right, and he's, he's always going to do it perfectly. And then you're like, well, then there's Paul. He's not going to do everything perfectly. And he goes, you know what? You get to watch me, but if you know I'm not going to back down on my faith, you're going to be encouraged in yours. And if you know that I'm not going to flip on this whole trusting Christ thing, well, then you can be further emboldened to be more assured of your faith. And he goes, that's the only thing Jesus couldn't do, is that he couldn't make you go, this is how a normal human being suffers. And this is how he clings to faith in that. He goes, but I get to do that. Does that make sense? Now, again, you're welcome to disagree with it, but I got that from reading the text that went beyond it, so that's how to find it. That was the idea. Well, let's pick this up, because we've got 12 minutes to finish the book, and we're only chapter 2. But, I mean, that was the one we had to develop, for good reason. Verse 3. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. There's the whole point of it. Remember we moved from, okay, now you know who Jesus is and what Jesus is. Firstborn, head of the church, payment for all of our sins. You guys got all that. Now let's try to bulletproof your faith. Let's try to, keep, let's try to make this thing right. Does that make sense? As you receive Jesus, that's the way you need to walk in him. Don't, and notice he says, remember verse 3, in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if someone says, I have special hidden knowledge, by the way, that word's gnosko, from which we get the term Gnostics from, because there was a group of people that were like, we have special secret hidden knowledge, and you, you're not even saved unless you have our knowledge. He goes, if it's a, if it's a valuable knowledge, it's, you're going to find it in Jesus. You're not going to find it in someone's special little pamphlet. And he goes, that's the problem, because these people are going to try to deceive you. Let's bulletproof your faith. If you, if you believed on Jesus, stay there. Don't walk away from Jesus for this other thing. Verse 7, rooted and built up and established in the faith, as you've been taught, abounding with it, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead body. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all I'm going to do something I don't normally do, but it's common in some churches. You know what they say? Now, I want you all to repeat this. You know what I'm saying? Turn to your neighbor and say, woo-wee! Right? Listen. There are people that are... Now, what does it mean to be cheated? <coughs> yeah, I mean, when you think you've been cheated, in the context of London, what would that normally mean? Someone buys past you. Someone buys and you want to buy them back. Okay, yeah, so chances are they got, they got off getting more for what, whatever it was you thought, and you thought someone was worth more than it was, and you got cheated. That's the word that's used there. I want you to know, you know, you know what they're going to use? Philosophy. If you're really smart, this is what it looks like. And all it does is take your focus off of Jesus and make it on this thing. But he goes, let me, let me, let me shoot that thing in the heart with two statements. One, Jesus is 100% God, verse 9. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Did you get that? Well, no, you're not going to be a real Christian unless you know the secret name of God. No, in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Right? In other words, the first one is, this is, Jesus is all you need. That doesn't mean you don't want the Father or the Holy Spirit, but hear me on that. That comes part and parcel with Jesus. You focus on anything else, and you away, you, your attention's moved away from Jesus, you're going to actually move into dangerous territory. Does that make sense? Because, first of all, make sure you got the right Jesus. Second, you're complete in Him. He's all you need. Hear me. The moment it's like, yes, you need Jesus, plus, you're stepping into cult territory. And that becomes the fundament. He goes, you want to shoot this thing in the heart? No, two things. Jesus, you are the one I need. And I'm completely. So here you are. Ready? I want you to say, if you're willing, and I'm going to say it, I am complete in Him. I'm, I'm going to say, I'm complete in Him. You try it. 
I'm complete in Jesus. Now let's just make it clear who that is. I am complete in Jesus. You try that. I am complete in Jesus. You ready? I'm not convinced. I think you need to tell your face. I am complete in Jesus. I am complete in Jesus. Remember that the next time someone tries to sell you something to cheat you. You know, you'll never really be a full-on Christian unless, nope, I am complete in Jesus. You need, no, in Him is the, all the fullness of the God in the Father. And by the way, you want to see one of the groups that's trying to do that? Verse 11. <laughs> in Him also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made <coughs> and in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. You know, that doesn't happen today, right? But obviously we know what group he's talking about. But there are groups that say, you are not saved until you are baptized into our church. Oh, no. Jesus is all I need, and I'm completing him. That doesn't mean I'm not going to get baptized. But it does mean I'm already saved the moment I accepted Jesus. Do you know that it is a papal decree that you are not saved unless you're part of the Catholic Church? That's why you have to be baptized in regards to that. Now, I'm not trying to pick on the Catholic Church. I just want you to know, it's a papal decree. And what that means is, as far as they're concerned, but you know, it's also taught. And I remember, I, was, I, was, I wasn't raised in it, but I was kicked out of the Catholic school. Um, but I did ask questions, and it did bother them, and I can see why. But that Jesus only died for the sins, Pope John Paul II, Jesus only died for the sins you committed until you received him. Then you, brought, you work off the rest. That's why you're doing all the prayers and lighting all the candles. And that's why Jesus is still on the cross. I'm like, you know what? Actually, Jesus died for all my sins, you know, because in him dwells the fullness of, the bo- of Godhead bodily. And I'm complete in him. It isn't like, well, Jesus did all that, but now, now I really got to get some candle lighting going on. You know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on somebody. I'm trying to go for the, the jugular on this. It really applies. You're complete in Him. You are complete in Him. All right, verse 12. Let's move forward. Buried with Him in baptism, in which you also raised with Him through faith <coughs> in the working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven all your trespasses. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Remember, triumph is a parade of victory. I'd love to develop this, but for the sake of time, know that much. It's important to know, when they talk about Jesus' triumphal entry, I think that's a fairly unfair misnomer. And the reason is, you throw a pep rally before a battle, and you gather all the people together to, to whoop them up, like Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, when he had the big feast, if you remember, that is the setting for the book of Esther. Um, remember how he wants to bring his wife out? You know, anyways, he, that's a pep rally. It's getting everyone excited about the battle. Because we're going to go to fight. But you have a parade afterwards to celebrate. Jesus' triumphal entry, as we call it, on Palm Sunday, what did he already want? He hadn't yet. It was a pep rally. The people were gathering together because they wanted to take down Rome. And they were waiting. Hey, come on, there's all these promises about Israel actually having supremacy and taking down all their enemies. Where's that? Does that make sense? 
This is one of the reasons why Jesus is crying when that happens. But when Jesus, you know where he, where he conquered it? At the cross. The enemies, by the way, then, are chained to the back of the, of the chariot of the commanding officer, dragged in front of everyone to say there'll never be a threat again, and then they're killed publicly after that. You're like, well, why not just kill them ahead of time? Because you need to see they're no longer a threat. Does that make sense? Listen, he disarmed principalities and powers, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. That public victory <coughs> showed that all those principality and powers are no longer a threat to you. He disarmed them. So therefore, verse 16. There, thank you. Let no one judge you in food or drink or in regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in self-humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which you have not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. And not holding forth to the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joint and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Okay, you do realize what he's saying, right? That there's another group of people that were super esoteric and hyper-spiritual, worshipping angels. Wait a minute, worshipping angels? Who worships angels? Oh yeah, there's groups that do that today. And notice the word he used again, cheat. Did you see that? You know what it says? You know why? Because they lost the head. We've talked about it before. I'll say it quickly. All of your senses are found in your head. Seeing, smelling, tasting, hearing, feeling. But below your head, only one sense is left. Your sense of feeling. And you remove the headship of Christ, which is your director's. The only thing that's going to be moved by, that will move you is feelings. Alright. Therefore, <coughs> verse 20. Therefore, if, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiment of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinary? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Which all contend means it's cherished with cherished with the using, according to the commandments and the doctrine of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. So now he moves from bulletproofing your faith so let's start moving forward set your mind on the things above not on the things of earth sorry for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in earth when Christ where your life appears then you also will appear with him in glory therefore put to death your members which are in the earth fornication uncleanness passion evil desire and covetousness, which is idolatry. For which, for which things say the wrath of God come upon the children of disobedience. For which ye yourselves once walked when ye lived in them. But now ye yourselves are to put off these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. And have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge, according to the image of him who created him. 
where there's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, but on tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your heart to the to which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. That the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. <coughs> and whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh. Know that I service as man pleases, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily, as to the Lord, and do not, and do not sin. And can I give this exhortation? We are almost done. The last chapter is a lot of names, which is part of the fun. I have to say a couple of things, but please know this. 17 and 23. If you live by these few verses as a Christian, I'm going to be stoked out of my mind on you. Not that that's the reason for you to do it. Whatever you do, and what you say or what you do, first of all, do it in the name of Jesus. The Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In other words, let nothing be done that is done not in the name of the Lord Jesus. The second is, whatever you do, do it heartily. What does that mean? It means put your heart in it. Do nothing but that which you do heartily. Imagine if that was our lives, you guys. Imagine if that was how we lived. Where I'm going to do whatever I do I'm going to do it in the name of Jesus and I'm going to put my heart in it. Because the world has seen enough heartless Christianity and it's time for them to see what it looks like for people to do it in Jesus' name and to do it with their heart in it. Alright, I'm done with my exhortation. <coughs> Is it me again? It's me, so I'm Knowing that, of, knowing that of the Lord, ye shall receive the reward of, of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord. <coughs> but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, give your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Meanwhile, Praying also for us that God will open to us the door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. That I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. I don't want to just tell it. I want to live it. Walking with, walking with them toward those who are outside redeeming the time. A beloved brother, faithful minister, fellow servant of the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. 
whom I have sent unto you, who are who, who whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that ye might know your estate and comfort your heart. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will make known to you all things which are happening here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, um, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. Do you remember that there was a time where <laughs> Paul didn't want anything to do with John Mark? Because he had flaked out on him on that first mission trip. He appears to be reconciled. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Okay, what does that mean they are the only fellow workers of the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision? The Jews. Yeah. Okay, in other words, he's now officially listed all the Jews. Do you know what that means? Every person from this point on is a Gentile. Is that fair? Verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a bond servant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in prayer, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So do you remember who Epaphras is? Yeah, he's the one who planted the church. Do you realize this church was planted by a Gentile? Yeah, you might want to know that. I think it's kind of fun. I bear witness, by the way, that he has a great zeal for you and for those in Laodicea and those in Iopolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas, Wait a minute. Luke, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke and wrote the Book of Acts, was what? Doctor. Yeah, he was not only a doctor, he was a Gentile. And they're like, I believe that all of the Gospels were written in Hebrew. Well, I don't know. This guy was clearly a Gentile. Anyway. With the brethren who are in Laodicea and Minnesota in the church that is in his house. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Apparently, we don't have that letter. Maybe we'll get that and we can ask. Can I see the letter? <laughs> Does it say anything about them laxing off or being lukewarm? And say to your hardship, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou Lord. What does that mean? Verse 17. Hmm. Yeah. Who? The common conservative opinion on this verse is that he was the pastor of the church. Whoever he was, he was not stepping up. He clearly had a calling on his life. He clearly was gifted. And God has given him a ministry. But he is not seizing it. He's like letting it be in the same room. It's like a gift that he can actually have on the table but not open. I can tell you some of my biggest heartbreaks, I know I shouldn't say that, but some of my biggest frustrations have been our chippuses or our kippuses in the world. Guys that you know are super gifted and super blessed and have great ministries, but for whatever reason have no great motivation to do anything with it. And you're like, dude, you guys made you a world changer. Anyways, don't be that. By the way, you couldn't be if you do those two things that whatever you do, you do. Last verse. This salutation by my own hands, Paul, 
Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Amen. Amen. Isn't that a beautiful? Isn't that a beautiful epistle? Well, this is what I want to pray for us as we conclude. And I want us to worship in the name of Jesus and to worship heartily. How's that? That we would do everything that way. And you're like, well, how do I do that? I can't tell you how to do it that way because the way that I do it heartily will look very different from the way Dan does something heartily. Or Jaden does something heartily. But you know. I can't tell you whether you're doing it heartily. But you can. And I want to. And I want to pray that for all of us to watch out. If you're amening, I warn you, you're signing, you're consigning into it. Would you pray with me?